Every Mother's Day, I'd like to um, talk about mothers, but in the larger context. You know, what a mother brings to us, what a mother provides in, in the human family and, and in human relationships is, is so vital. We have sometimes this idea that God as father is masculine. And we want to take a look at that a little bit and try to come to another understanding of God's nature, how God works in our lives. And it may rattle a few cages. I hope that it does. It usually does. You know, it's great to get your cage rattled every once in a while. Challenge some of the set beliefs and some of the set attitudes and find out exactly where all this is going because God is so much more than anything that we could comprehend. God is so much more than anything that we could fill and fit into our heads. And so to try to open that up and break that up is, is just a beautiful thing. It should be done regularly, like spring cleaning or something. You know, um, To try to understand the way the Jews saw God, which is important to, to me and I think to most of us here, because we're trying to understand this message uh, from Jesus' lips as an ancient Eastern Hebrew. And if we can understand how his people that he was speaking to using the, the language that they understood about God, then we can get closer to the intent, closer to the idea. And it's really buried in their language. And this is one of the beautiful things about the ancient Hebrew language, actually all Semitic languages. They have what's called a root and pattern system. And I wanted to take you through just a little bit to try to understand how language can give us cues and clues into the people's understanding, their worldview, their concepts about God. Now, if you think about an ancient language, how does an ancient language even come to be? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how do you invent a language? Where does it go? Well, it starts with a spoken language, obviously. So at some point, people started making the same sounds to denote the same person, place, or thing, and the same action, and those sounds became a language. And as it grew and, and it became more and more complex, those sounds could denote names of things, actions, concepts, abstract concepts, all these things. But they're just sounds that we can make with our larynx and our tip, <laughs> lips and, and tongue and teeth and sounds in the air. Now, you want to try to write that down. What's the way that you normally would start? Just look at children. Children draw pictures first. On cave walls, we had pictures first, not written language, but pictures. And so pictures of things that were common, everyday objects, the domesticated animals, the animals that they hunted and fed on, the animals that hunted and fed on them, those were the things that were largest in their lives, the people in their lives, the relationships that they had. These were things that they started to draw pictures of, sunsets and eyes and mouth and teeth. All these things became concepts that they wrote pictures for. And so this creates a glyph. This creates a hieroglyph like the Egyptian system that you might have heard of or seen, where each picture was a picture of something or a concept or an action. Now, the trouble with starting a language like that is you need a lot of symbols. Think about all the things that you have to convey. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs had between 700 and 800 symbols that grew to some counts over 2,000 as the language became more and more complicated. And then it finally had to give away to another system because this becomes unwieldy. Too many symbols, too many things you have to remember. You know, no one's going to be able to use the language when it gets that complicated. So here was the genius. Here was the thing that happened 
somewhere in the couple of millennia before Jesus comes on the scene in Phoenicia, in modern-day Lebanon and, and northern Israel, is the area that is credited with coming up with the first alphabet. But the genius was that the glyph, the, the mark that you're going to make, is not denoting a thing, a person, a place, or a concept. It's denoting a sound. Because the sounds that you can make are pretty limited. You can only make just so many sounds as human beings. And so you only need then a small set of marks to denote those sounds. And then you just put the marks together to recreate the sound that you're making in the air. Make sense? So now we only need, and Hebrews only had 22 letters in their alphabet. We have 26 letters. The Phoenician alphabet was the first one. Everybody started borrowing it, except the Greeks. It's all Greek to us because they have a different alphabet. But all the Semitic languages use the Phoenician alphabet. Even the Romans use the Phoenician alphabet. And those 22 letters that grew to, in our culture to be 26, just denote sounds now. And so the sounds actually recreate the language. Now we have a system that is containable. It's doable. It's something that we can actually use. Now what the Semitic languages did is they took every one of those 22 letters and they assigned a meaning to it. Now it came from the original pictograph and so it had a meaning already. And that meaning was put together with a second letter. Two letters together are what's called a parent root. And those two letters with those two meanings create the meaning for that root. And then you add a third letter. That's called a child root. You add a fourth letter. That was considered a word. And so when we are looking, and this is how a lot of the word analysis and word study that, that I use, that scholars use, that I'm giving to you, works because even though we can take a word from Hebrew or Aramaic and translate it into English, unless we go back up through the root and pattern system, we won't really understand the concept that the ancients had for that particular word. So, for instance, the word for pray is selah in Aramaic. We translate it into pray. Now, we think we understand what that word means because we know what we mean by pray. But if you go back to the original root that, that parent root of the word selah, the shin and the lamed, those are two letters. What you have is the idea of trap, to set a trap. It was a hunting term originally. So how does trapping have anything to do with prayer? But see, to the ancient Semitic mind, when you set a trap, and we've done all this before, you go into the woods, you clear a space meticulously, you set the snare, you cover it over with leaves, you retire into the blind, and you wait expectantly for something to happen. So to the Semitic mind, to pray means to lean into, to incline toward, to pay attention to, to clear a space and then wait expectantly. That's the idea of prayer. See, that's why no translation can actually get us where we want to go. We have to go back up through this root and pattern system, understand where the words came from to start to understand the ancient Semitic mind, the Hebrew mind. Now it becomes this this open space. It's like our Rosetta Stone to start to understand. And we can do the same thing with the words for God, the words for father and mother, and all the basic relationships, and we can start to understand how these ancient peoples looked at these relationships. For instance, Ab is father. In our, in our alphabet, A-B. In their, aleph, in their alphabet, Aleph and Beit. Those two letters, Aleph, actually started out as the pictograph of an ox head because the ox was the strongest domestic animal that they had connection with. And so that was their primary. That was their number one. And if you think about it, it's really fascinating. If you take an ox head and you draw it really simply, it's a triangular face with the two horns. 
At some point around the first millennium, all the manuscripts that we have been able to unearth suddenly just inverted 180 degrees. And so that ox head now becomes our letter A. No one knows why everything rotated 180 degrees, but it did. But that's the original idea of the Aleph was the ox head. It means strong. It means the strongest of something. And then you mate that with bet, which means house. It was the actual floor plan of an ancient Hebrew tent that had two sides with a, with a dalet, a door, a hanging sheet in the middle to separate the male and the females. And you can still see that shape in our letter B, except I did that backwards to you. You can still see the two halves of that ancient tent. And it meant house. It could mean family. And so literally, father was strong house. The father was the one who gave strength to the house. The father was the one who gave the house and provided for the house everything that it needed to be able to be strong. It was literally like the pole that held up the tent. It was the strength of the house. Now, mother is Emma. And the little kids would call Emma, call their mother Emma, which means mommy, and Abba, which means daddy. But M, even though it looks like an E to us in our language, is still Aleph, because it could be denoted by either an A or an E. So you still have strong. And then you have the Mem, R-M, right? That was the symbol for water. And if you think about it, it was originally just a little pictograph of the ripples of the water, and we still retain that in our letter M. But strong water, what does that mean? For mothers, strong water. Strong house is pretty obvious, strong water. Well, the ancients, when they tanned their hides, they would boil the hides, and what would rise to the surface of the water as they were boiling the hides in the process of making them useful for whatever they were going to make, there was this thick, sticky, white substance that would come out of the hides. And they would skim that off, and they literally used it as glue. They used it as adhesive in their processes. So strong water... The mother was seen as the glue that held the family together. Beautiful. And so the relationships, the idea here, the father is the one who provided the strength of the house. He was the one who went out and accomplished things, fought wars, executed justice, did whatever was needed in terms of making the family strong. And the mother was the one who was the glue who held everyone together. You can go right down the other relationships. Ah, was the word for brother. Again, Aleph and then Chet, which was usually translated as two H's. And a Chet was a wall. And so it's a strong wall because the brothers were the ones that really formed the army. They were the, they were the working force. They were the army, the shield. And so they were the strong wall. And then Sun was Ben which is a bet and a nun, which was a seed. So it was the seed of the house, the house that continues, the seed that continues the house. So you can see how all of these parent roots are giving us an idea of how these ancient Hebrews saw their families, saw the world around them. And when we take those concepts and we look and we say, okay, how about God? Here we have the strong house, and that really is dealing with accomplishment, it's dealing with knowledge, it's dealing with moving out and executing plans, and then you have the strong water, which is about relationship, it's about compassion, it's about mercy. It's really the difference between doing and being, if you want to take a look at it that way. You know? Remember Martha and Mary, that, that, that story about Martha and Mary? Martha was the doing one. She was running around preparing the meal and she was getting irritated at her sister who was just being, just sitting at the foot of Jesus and listening. Lord, tell her to come and help me make the dinner. 
No, no, no. There's a time for that. There's a place for that. She's chosen the better part right now. You know? So we have this dichotomy between you know, doing and being and Martha and Mary and all these other things. And we naturally, as Westerners, think in terms of dualities. We separate things. You know? But the Hebrew mind looks at everything as a unity, as one thing, or a continuum between the two. We've talked about good and evil in here. We see them as polar opposites, either morally or ethically, or even cosmically, and constant, constantly in battle with each other. But to the Hebrew mind, good was right, and evil was unripe, and there was a continuum between the two. Things that were seen as evil, unripe, were things that were just immature, were not yet able to fulfill what they were supposed to fulfill, for whatever reason. And so there's a continuum between the two. Light and dark, nura and heshuka, same thing. Instead of polar opposites, they were seen as complementary, like night and day, revolving. Necessary opposites, necessary complements. So the daytime, the light was a time that you had straight lines and you could go out and you would accomplish things. That was a masculine energy. And then the nighttime was a place of curling and swirling energies like the energies of water and wind. And at nighttime was a time for assimilation, the time for introspection, the time for restoration. And that was seen as a feminine energy, but they were both seen as necessary opposites, two sides of the same thing, if you will. So what about God? Sometimes women will come to me and they wonder, you know, is God a man? It's hard to relate sometimes to someone who's other than yourself. You know, when the president of the United States is a Democrat and you're a Republican, you wonder, man, can he really represent me or the other way around? You know, he doesn't have the same policies, the same ideas. If God is a man, you know, women sometimes wonder, is he able to really understand me? And we spend so much time in our language talking about God as father, as as he, as masculine. It sometimes messes with people's head, especially if you had a difficult relationship with your father, your earthly father. If he was demanding, if he was overbearing, if he was abusive, then to try to relate to God as Father can be very problematic. And it's amazing how much we carry of our attitudes towards our earthly Father into our spiritual relationships and understanding of our Heavenly Father. And so trying to get through these things and take a look at them is what we really need to do. Because is God really male? Is God Father? Is God Mother? Is God female? Well, of course he's neither. God is spirit, but he's also both at the same time. And this is the way that the Hebrews understood their God. They called him Echad. Remember, the, the, uh, the most central prayer in all of Judaism was called the Shema. And it appears at Deuteronomy 6. And it's Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. And it means, hear, O Israel, listen, Israel, listen up well, you know, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad is one. But this oneness is not a single thing. It's multiple things functioning as one thing. That was their idea of their God. God wasn't masculine or feminine, male or female, father or mother. He was both of those functioning as one thing. And they understood that so deeply and so basically, it didn't need to be repeated as the writers of scripture were writing. But it needs to be repeated to us because we don't understand anymore. They understood this. They got this. Father and mother functioning as one. Strong house, strong water. 
in one being, in one entity, in one power. This is what the scriptures are trying to get across. Take a look at, at the first uh, scripture there in your bulletins, and Brendan will put it up. Proverbs 1. Any of you read Proverbs? You know that what Proverbs does is to personalize, anthropomorphize wisdom. And so right there at verse 20, wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. So here is wisdom. Here is chokhmah in Hebrew. Anthropomorphized, personified as a woman, as feminine. And this is what is so difficult for us to sometimes understand. The word for spirit, ruach in Hebrew, ruha in Aramaic, is a feminine word. The word for kingdom, malkutha, is a feminine word. So really, kingdom is queendom. How about that? How does that mess up with your head, huh? You know? The spirit of God, the spirit that we're talking about, the third person in the Trinity, is feminine. Wisdom is feminine. And it's so important for us to understand what is wisdom anyway? A wisdom is sort of applied knowledge, isn't it? It's not just head knowledge. See, that would be masculine. Head knowledge is something that you accomplish. The strong house is something that you accomplish. And so knowledge is accomplished. Wisdom is experienced. It's experienced in relationship. It's, it's experienced in all of the daily activities of living. So you probably heard this before. You know, wisdom is applied knowledge. It's knowledge that we take out into the streets and as we experience life with this knowledge, we find out how true it is. We find out how real it is. We find out how it really works. I've heard somebody say, you know, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Another cool saying I heard is like, you know, knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. That's not bad. Knowledge is having a lot of things to say. Wisdom is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. You know, all of these things that we sort of know at a common sense level, we have to bring back up again and understand. Because wisdom points to an experience. It points to a lived relationship. Just as ruach and ruha are feminine, this paraclete, this helper that Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go when he's heading to the cross to his followers because then the helper is going to come. That helper was understood as spirit, ruha, as feminine. Not as mother so much as this unity of God. This is what we... Take a look at Hosea 11 at the first verse. The Lord says, and this is Hosea quoting God, the Lord says, when Israel was a child... I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. So here is God speaking about Israel as if it were a single son, a single child. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. It's hard to find a more beautiful passage in Scripture than that one. That beautiful imagery of a mother loving her child, doing the things that mothers do. 
God speaking about the entire nation of Israel. God in Hebrew writing is often anthropomorphized as female. There's a name for God, El Shaddai. Have you heard of that one before? El Shaddai. Often it's translated, most often it's translated as God Almighty, but that's not really what it means. A shad in Hebrew is a breast. Literally, El Shaddai means mighty teat. Now that sounds sacrilegious, maybe blasphemous to some of you, but it was pointing to God as provider. It was pointing to God as nourishing mother. The Hebrews had multiple names for their God, each one pointing out a different characteristic of God. El Shaddai was pointing out to this feminine idea right there, illustrated so beautifully in Hosea 11, of God as mother, caring for his children the way a mother cares for her children. You know, So how can it be both? How can God be both father and mother at the same time? Now, the Western mind starting to lose its cookies here on this because we're dualistic thinkers. It's got to be one or the other and only one thing can be true at a time. How can God be both father and mother? You know, the best I can do with an analogy for this is, is the earth round or flat? We know that the earth is round, right? But think about it. We know the earth is round, but we experience it as flat. Every day that we walk around this earth, we experience it as flat. That's why the ancient peoples believed that it was flat for so long, because they couldn't get the perspective to understand that it was a sphere. We know it's round, that's knowledge, that's accomplishment, that's strong house. We experience it as flat. That's wisdom, that's relationship, that's experience. It's the same way with God. Yes, God is strong house. Yes, God is the one who gives strength to everything that is. But we're going to experience God as mother. We're going to experience God as mercy and compassion, not executive authority. He is that but we're going to experience him day to day in this other way. This is what Jesus is really trying to get across. Think about it. Jesus as a child, what did he experience first? He experienced his mother's care. And Jesus grew like any other child. Luke 2 tells us he grew in wisdom and stature. So he had to learn, he had to grow. And his first experience of God's spirit, God's connection in his life was his mother experiencing first the mercy and the compassion and the unconditional love, the chokmah, the ruha, first in his mother. Then as he grew into the knowledge and the accomplishment, later he saw him as father. But because of the relationship he had through his mother, he didn't just see God as father, God, the king of the universe, up on a throne someplace. He called him Abba. He called him Daddy. He had this intimate relationship with his father and that was revolutionary in Jewish thought at the time. Because God was the king of the universe, he was separated from the people the same way their temporal king was separated from them. He was way up there someplace. Here's Jesus bringing him in. Here's Jesus crawling into his daddy's lap and denoting a completely different type of relationship that was possible because he first experienced God's spirit in his mother. He experienced mother first. And for Jesus and for all of us, we need to experience God as mother first if we're ever going to get the kind of intimate relationship that Jesus is talking about. 
Think about Jesus' treatment of women that is preserved for us in the New Testament. In first century, in the first century world in the Eastern Roman Empire, that was revolutionary. Women were property. Children were property. Jesus elevated them both up to a different standard because of his reverence for mother, his reverence for this side of the equation that was so necessary. Jesus mirrored this order in all of his encounters also. Everything experienced first through Emma and then through Abba, first through mother, through mercy and compassion and complete acceptance, and then through teaching and knowledge, discipline, structure, always in that order. He always leads with relationship first. He leads with acceptance first. He leads with the feminine first. Then the teaching. Then the sin no more. Remember when the woman is brought to him? He accepts her. All the other accusers walk away. You know, Who's left to accuse you? No one. Neither do I accuse you. I accept you. There's Emma. Now go and sin no more. There's Abba. But it starts with relationship. And then it moves to the strong house. This is over, seen over and over again. In Mark 1 and 2, Jesus in very quick succession heals a leper, heals the paralytic, and then asks Levi to follow him out of his tax booth. Think about each encounter. He sees the leper on the road. Lepers were supposed to call out unclean because anyone who touched a leper was now ritually unclean as well. Whether they got Hansen's disease or not, it didn't really matter. In fact, a leper could be any kind of skin disease. It didn't have to be leprosy. But if you touched someone who was unclean, now you were unclean and you had to be ritually cleansed. What does Jesus do? The first thing he does when the leper asks him for healing, he touches him before he healed him. He reaches out. He breaks that boundary. He breaks that ritual barrier to reach out and connect, to accept first, and then he heals. The paralytic, you know, the one that he sees, you know, first thing he does, who's the one who's lowered down through the ceiling, remember that story? First thing he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Before he does anything, before the man had any chance of repentance, before he had any act of contrition, before anything happened, he just is laid through the ceiling at his feet and the first thing he says is, sons, your, your sins are forgiven. Jesus breaks a theological boundary there. That was only for God and that was only for the temple priests to accept any kind of forgiveness, any kind of healing, any kind of closure. And Jesus does that first before he heals him, before he knows anything about him. And Levi sitting at his tax booth, the scum of the earth as far as Jews were concerned. You know, think about the lowest person on our social totem pole that you can think of, whether it's pedophiles or child rapists, that's where tax collectors were in Jewish society in the first century because they were Roman collaborators. And Jesus calls him, come follow me, right out of the tax booth. Levi is so excited, he runs and follows him. He says, I'm going to dine with you tonight. Jesus literally invites himself over for dinner for someone who was a tax collector, who stood outside the law. This was unheard of. He's breaking social barriers there. But the acceptance comes first. Relationship comes first. The teaching will come later. Any one of us can only be healthy, can only be balanced in this order. To start first with relationship, to start first with acceptance, to know that we are accepted 
before we embark on whatever it is that we're going to learn or whatever it is we're going to do. So many of us are running around trying to learn things and do things in order to be accepted, and it's not possible. It cannot happen. You will be on that hamster wheel for the rest of your life. When do you ever think that you're going to be good enough if you're not good enough now? This is the genius of mother first. This is the genius of seeing God as both father and mother, mercy and compassion, complete acceptance, and then also the structure and the discipline and the accomplishment that we need in life. You probably heard the saying that he's got a face only a mother could love, right? That's leading with total acceptance. That is being blind to any imperfection and just bringing in with total love, total compassion, total acceptance. A mother's love, when it's done well, and I know some of you probably have not had altogether great experiences with your mother, but a mother's love is the closest thing to unconditional love as we can get on this earth. I love the image, and I've seen it so many times at the beach, not lately because I don't get to the beach much these days, but a mother sitting above the surf line and a little child running out into the surf when the wave recedes and as soon as the wave comes back in, they beeline back and they grab mom. you know, And then they go back out on the surf and they beeline back to grab mom again. Coming back to mother, coming back to safety. You know, life is like that. We have to know that there is a safe place. We have to know that there is a place of complete acceptance so that we can go out and do the things that we need to do on our particular hero's journey. Take that loop Take that cycle. Do all the things that we have to do. Bear all the things that we have to do. Deal with the fears of life, knowing that we can always run back to safety, run back to Mother God, who is part of Father God. You know, without that experience, without having experienced Mother loving us first, life is going to be too frightening to live on any kind of terms that we would understand. So our mother's love or the memory of it, hopefully we have that because that's the counterweight. That's the balance to life that is so hurtful, so traumatic, so difficult. I think part of my problem in life has been that I lost connection with my mother's acceptance when I hit middle school. For whatever reason, what I remember of my mother through those 7th and 8th grade years was a lot of criticism, you know, a lot of unacceptance. And I don't know if I'm just remembering it wrong or if my mom was going through something. You know, I'm sure she still loved me, but I wasn't getting that love. And I wasn't getting a feeling that I was accepted at all anymore. And what it did is it spurred me on to find acceptance, you know. At, at eighth grade, I went out for all sports. I was a bookie kid before that. <laughs> Go figure, right? Um, but I went out for sports and I went to dances and I did all sorts of things that were out of my comfort zone, but I just wanted to find some way to be accepted. And that went on for the next 20-some years. Just trying to achieve, trying to do things, trying to go Abba because I didn't feel like I had Emma. Trying to find that, that thing that would get me over the line, make me feel like I was accepted again. And finally in my 30s, I found acceptance again. You know where I found it though? I found it in the discovery of this Eastern Jesus. I found it in the discovery that Jesus wasn't like the Jesus I was taught as a child in the Catholic Church or even retaught in the Evangelical Church. 
that he was a God who moved forward in mother first, complete acceptance first, and then taught afterwards how we could raise our boats, raise our standards. That's 30 years of trying to figure that out. But finally, finding it there was a release for me to stop striving to get something that I already possessed, which is love and acceptance. The Father pushes us. The Father holds us to standards. Our earthly Father does that. you know. Our Heavenly Father does that. That's okay. The Mother balances that. Yes, we're supposed to work. Yes, we're supposed to strive. Yes, there's effort that we have to put into this spiritual relationship. But not to get the acceptance, not to get the love. That's already there. That's ground zero. We have to know that. And Mother balances that. Now, there's supposed to be balance within Father and Mother, too. It's not just that mother is all acceptance and father is all discipline. No, our goal as people is to become balanced within that. Heard a fascinating, there was a fascinating exchange that occurred in a, in a group session a while back. And there was a woman there who had lost her month-old son to SIDS, if you can imagine. And what she was talking about was that at that point she hated God. She hated God when her son died. No one could explain to her how SIDS work. I don't even think we know how SIDS work. SIDS works, you know. But her son died. There was no explanation. He was just dead. And she hated God. And her question was, you know, did I lose my faith then because I hated God? And and what kind of monster is God who would kill my child? And all the normal questions that we would ask when something that traumatic hits. And there was a young woman also in the group And it triggered a memory in her that I thought was just so interesting. She said, I remember that when I was a kid and I would get so mad at my mom and I would tell her, I hate you. And she said, my mom would start dancing around the house. You know, dancing and singing. And and she said, I just thought my mom was weird. She didn't understand what's going on here. You know, because she was so angry. Now, maybe her mom was trying to diffuse the situation. But years later, when this woman had a daughter of her own, And she was holding that baby and she was talking to her mother and she says, I don't know if I can ever stand to hear my daughter tell me, I hate you. And her mom said, if you never hear I hate you from your daughter, from your child, then you're not doing your job. Wow. Maybe she was dancing because she realized she was doing her job correctly. (laughs) I don't know. But for that young woman to make that connection to God, if we've never said, I hate you to God, then we're not taking God seriously enough. God always does his job. But if we've never been pushed to the point where we say, I hate you, God, then we haven't taken our faith walk seriously enough. If we've never doubted our faith, we've never taken our faith seriously enough. This is part of the process. This is part of what goes on. You know? God is not doing his job if we're not saying we hate. I love that concept. If we don't lead with mother, if we don't lead with this perfect acceptance, then we're going to all run around thinking we need to be perfect, just like I did for 30 years, thinking I had to reach some sort of perfection. But then you're probably asking, well, doesn't the scripture tell us we're supposed to be perfect? Yes and no. Take a look at Matthew 5 at verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
that sons of your father is the connection that they would understand as being identified with, identical with father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Those lowly tax collectors. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect and that scares the bejesus out of us. How in the world are we supposed to be perfect? You've got to take that line and put it into the context of the passage to understand the meaning. Perfection here as Jesus is using it, the word gemar in Hebrew means complete, it means fulfilled, it means whole. But in context, what's the context? The context is loving the enemy. How do you love the enemy? How do you love someone that you don't get? Someone who's very different than you? Someone you don't like? Someone that you're in, in actual adversarial position with? How do you love a person like that? The only way you can possibly do it is to lead with mother, to lead with Emma. You start with acceptance because you don't feel any affection. You don't feel any sentimentality. There is no connection there that you can hang on to at all. So you just have to lead. It's a face only a mother could love. And if you can do that, then you are perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You are whole. You are complete. In that moment, loving that face that only a mother can love, leading with acceptance first where it's not deserved, is exactly how the father loves. That's what it means to be perfect. Not perfectionistic, not without mistake, but fulfilled and whole if you can simply lead with mother. We need to start learning to love our imperfections, to stop trying to erase them all the time. If we're trying to erase them in order for acceptance, that's the fool's errand. That's the thing that will never end. If we can learn to see ourselves as imperfect, but also connected at the same time. Stop trying to hide. Look at 2 Corinthians. What is Paul saying at chapter 12? And he has said to me, God has said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul continues, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we can boast about our weaknesses, if we can accept our weaknesses and realize that in that weakness we are strong because God accepts us anyway, everything starts to change. Think about your friends, the ones that you love most, the ones that you know best. You know they're not perfect. You know they're imperfection. You know where all the bodies are buried, right? You love them anyway. And in fact, those imperfections, those eccentricities, those things that those people do are the things that endear them to you the most. Right? Am I right? It's the way it works. If you think anyone is perfect, What kind of relationship do you have with them? They're distant. They're up on a pedestal someplace. And so here we are trying to erase the very thing that makes us accessible, makes us acceptable, that endears us to others. It's the irony of our lives that we do this. I saw a, what was it, a YouTube recording or something of a woman 
talking about her husband at his funeral service. And I just transcribed a couple paragraphs because I thought it was so striking. She's standing at the podium in front of her family and friends and she says, I'm not going to sing praises to my late husband. Not today. Neither am I going to talk about how good he was. Enough people have done that here. Instead, I want to talk about some things that will make some of you feel a bit uncomfortable. First off, I want to talk about what happened in bed. (laughs) Ever had difficulty starting your car engine in the morning? And she simulates snoring. Well, that's exactly what David's snoring sounded like. But wait, snoring wasn't everything. There was also this rear-end wind action going on as well. (coughs) Some nights it sounded... Some nights it would be so forceful, it would wake him up. What was that, he would ask. Oh, it's the dog, I would say. Go back to sleep, dear. Now, you might find this really funny, but towards the end of his life, when his illness was at its worst, these sounds indicated to me that my David was still alive. And what I wouldn't give just to hear those sounds again before I sleep. In the end, it's these small things that you remember the little imperfections that make them perfect for you. So to my beautiful children, I hope one day you too find yourself life partners who are as beautifully imperfect as your father was to me. How do you say it any better than that? A mother's love leading with Emma. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? Hopefully we can start to see the imperfections in ourselves and each other before they are gone. To realize and to revel in our imperfections, to know that we are accepted anyway, just the way they are, because God loves that way. Think about what annoys you right now. Long sermons. (laughs) Traffic. Kids screaming around the house. Can we celebrate those imperfections? Because when those kids are gone and the nest is empty, we would give anything to have them screaming around the house again, wouldn't we? You know, this is the way life works. The imperfections that we're trying to erase, that we're trying to get rid of, they make life unique. They make it engaging. They make it endlessly surprising. If everything was according to what we thought it should be, it would always be uniform. It would never give us any kind of, you know, raised blood pressure. It would be so boring. You know, make friends with imperfection. Make it the new normal for you. Don't wish it away because you're wishing life away when you wish the imperfections away. This is life. The biggest lie that we have been told by whoever has told it, whether it was church or parents or society itself, is that we need to be perfect in order to be accepted. We do not. We are accepted right now because our Father leads with Mother. We all have faces that only a mother could love. But our imperfections make us beautiful in God's sight, lovable, approachable. Can we really trust this? Can we trust that God loves this way? You know, if our own mothers didn't instill that deep enough, solidly enough, that we have that natural balance of knowing that I am lovable just as I am, then you need to find it in the real Jesus not the one that is often portrayed to us, but the one who leads with mother himself, always leads with relationship and acceptance first, always mother first. 
And of course, showing us with every relationship that that's exactly how our Father in Heaven loves. His Mother first. Always leading with compassion and mercy. And every time we experience our Father, the strong house, the disciplinarian, the one with all the structure, the one, the God of accomplishment, of creation, we will always experience Him as Mother in every moment of our lives with the mercy and compassion and unconditional acceptance. That's it. Let's pray. Father and Mother God, it sounds so strange for us to say something like that. Help us to see you as you are. Not as we have been taught you to be, not as we have experienced other relationships to be, but as you are, as Jesus has shown us you are. We need to know that we are completely accepted, completely acceptable right here, sitting, breathing, without anything further, so that as we go out and do the things we need to do, Lord, we can do them with that sense of contentment, that sense of peace at core, which will allow us to be able to love as you love, which is leading first with acceptance. Help us to be able to do that. Just experience that one time so that we know it's possible, so that we know that it's possible that you love us that way too. Father, thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you for these words that we can use to find a way back to you, back to your lap, back to your love. Never let us forget, Father, we can only love at all because you've already loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.